0: Most evenings in Springfield, Illinois, I walked down to talk to Mr. Lincoln. Some nights were cold, damp, gloomy. Some nights were hot and so humid my undershirt stuck to my back. The kind of weather that made the corn grow a foot a night, as my tenant farmer grandfather would say, when I was a kid, spitting watermelon seeds on the back porch. Those gloomy winter nights, with the dampness glistening on the cobblestone street, the only shadow moving on the street was mine. The sun long set in the early darkness. On those nights, I stood across the street from that pleasant, not overly imposing frame house, the only house Mr. Lincoln ever owned. Some nights, those nights when I knew I'd be alone, I wore the combat uniform of an army officer. Indistinguishable from that of an enlisted soldier. Some nights, those nights when I knew others would be in the neighborhood, catching a glimpse of Mr. Lincoln's home, I stopped at my rooms, a few blocks closer to the train station he had departed Springfield from, and changed into civilian clothes, so as not to draw attention from other visitors. It was a private talk that I was seeking with Mr. Lincoln, not the lingering stares of those wondering why a soldier dressed for battle stood across that quiet street from Mr. Lincoln's home. It was a private mission, not public business, that drew me to visit with Mr. Lincoln. I much preferred to visit with him on those London like evenings of late winter, early spring, with the chill, damp air penetrating my desert camouflage. The chattering tourists snapping selfies, herded by guides speaking an in indecipherable language, or the school teachers struggling to control boisterous kids, interrupted my communion with Mr. Lincoln on the warm summer nights. Good for growing corn, not so good for a commander seeking solace. Why did I want to talk with Mr. Lincoln? Why did I walk from the comfortable townhouse with that fire crackling in the fireplace, the one overlooking Mr. Lincoln's park and his library and his museum, and the railroad depot he'd left Springfield from. I made that walk because he had carried far greater burdens than I. he had lost far more soldiers than I. Like me, a man from a humble background. Like me, a man who'd become a lawyer. Like me, a man who'd served as an enlisted soldier. Like me, a man who became an officer in the Illinois National Guard. Like me, a man who'd ordered soldiers into combat. But a man who'd faced far greater challenges, far greater losses than me. A man who surely could help me. When you're a kid growing up in Illinois, especially central Illinois, you grow up with Mr. Lincoln. The license plates on your parents' car, your grandparents' farm truck, and your wild uncle's motorcycle all say, Land Lincoln." The pennies you hoard have Mr. Lincoln on them. In the sixth grade, you board the big yellow school buses and trundle over to Springfield, where you visit that same Mr. Lincoln's home, his tomb, and the old Capitol where he sat as a state legislator. Twenty five years later, after active duty military service, you don the uniform of the Illinois Army National Guard and wear the patch bearing Mr. Lincoln's likeness, the one on your right shoulder the one the enlisted soldiers jokingly refer to as A.B. Baby. So it's only natural that after yet another twenty years pass that you turn to Mr. Lincoln for guidance, for comfort, for wisdom. I talked. He listened. The talks with Mr. Lincoln didn't come quickly or easily, but once they started, they were very necessary. They eased my soul. They helped me get to sleep on those nights alone in Springfield. Those nights with a blackberry by my bedside, praying that it wouldn't ring during the night. Being a general with soldiers in combat is like being a father with teenagers. When the phone rings in the middle of the night, you know it isn't good news. It was the fall of 2007 when I became the adjutant general for the Illinois National Guard, put on the second star of a major general. And took command of the 10,000 soldiers and 3,000 airmen of the Illinois Army and Air National Guard. The military, with the Guard and the Reserves, had been at war for six years. The nation, less so. The Army was stretched thin. Large scale deployments of the National Guard were taking place to spell the soldiers of the active duty Army. The 3,500 soldiers of the Illinois Army National Guards. 33rd Infantry Brigade Combat Team, were slated to mobilize the next year for deployment to Iraq. Units of the Army and Air National Guard, like National Guard units nationwide, had been deploying, fighting, and dying since September 11, 2001, just as they still are today. But this was to be our largest combat deployment since World War II. Iraq was quieting down, the 400 infantrymen of our 2nd Battalion, 130th Infantry Regiment, the same unit I'd served in as a young 1st Lieutenant, the unit we called 2 of the 130, or Blackhawks, in honor of Lincoln's service during the Blackhawk War, had just returned from Iraq without taking a single casualty. Maybe we won the global war on terror, as the George W. Bush administration labeled it. Six weeks into command, Six weeks after leaving my comfortable law practice, six weeks after pinning on that second star and becoming a full-time guardsman and no longer a weekend soldier, a half-dozen of my senior colonels filed into my second-floor corner office on Camp Lincoln to ask me to agree to a remissioning of the 33rd Brigade. The Army didn't need us in Iraq anymore. It was quiet. The Army needed us in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Every good soldier is a student of history. Afghanistan. The country that hadn't been conquered since Alexander the Great. The country that killed every British soldier but one in a regiment retreating from Kabul through the Khyber Pass. Afghanistan. The country that defeated not one, but two of the world's greatest empires in the last century and a half the British and the Soviet Union. Afghanistan, the place where British soldiers grimly told newcomers, save your last bullet for yourself. You don't want to be taken alive, they said. Afghanistan, the place empires go to die. I glanced around the conference table at the eager faces of the colonels, excited to take on this new mission, excited to face the challenge, ready to prove to the Taliban, ready to prove to Afghanistan. Ready to prove to the world, and most importantly, ready to prove to the U.S. Army what the Illinois National Guard and its soldiers could do. They were thinking about the resources we'd need, the training dollars, the equipment, the chance to prove we citizen soldiers, we weakened warriors, could send a full brigade of infantrymen into battle. Some wore combat patches signifying they'd spent a tour or more, in the war zone. A few didn't. But they were all thinking about how to get the unit ready. None were thinking about what the job meant. When the lead colonel finished speaking, I quietly said, You know this means we'll take casualties. Uncomfortable silence. Colonels shifting their glances to one another. What the hell does the old man have to ask a question like that for? Clearly on their minds That's why soldiering is a young man's game Young men are convinced they're bulletproof Old men know better Broken bodies and bitter mothers Are the true fruit of war Not valor and glory Mr. Lincoln knew that My colonels were to learn that Mr. Lincoln and I were to talk about that